Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this autumn is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department is asking Oregonians to unlock their creativity with poetry, drawings, photos, and songs inspired by the state's most beautiful places. You can submit your work as part of the Oregon State Parks Centennial Creative Challenge. It's part of celebrations honoring 100 years of state parks in Oregon, and you can find out more about the challenge at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're going to return to some of my favorite interviews from the earliest days of this podcast including a conversation with a fire lookout, a sand artist, and a ranger who takes us on a journey with gray whales off the Oregon coast. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, last week, this podcast hit a milestone in that we recorded our 80th episode. We've been doing this show for five years now, and in the beginning, barely anybody listened. We've picked up a wonderful audience since then, and a lot of you have discovered some of our older episodes, so many thanks for checking out that back catalog. But there are also some interviews and fun stuff that's been missed by just about everybody because they're part of our earliest, earliest episodes. So in this podcast, I thought I'd bring back some of my favorite overlooked interviews we'll hear from a colorful combination of characters, including park rangers and wilderness explorers. They'll describe what it sounds like to hear a whale breathe, what it's like to be atop a mountain during a lightning storm, and the experience of exploring an ancient rainforest canyon where almost nobody travels. So hopefully you'll enjoy these, which I have shortened just a bit here and there. We'll be back with new episodes later this month. this first episode was one of my favorites from episode number 22. The backstory is that I've written about the gray whale migrations off the Oregon coast a number of times and I've gone whale watching a few times as well. But often all you could see was at best maybe a spout in the distance. You couldn't really tell if it was much of anything at all. But that changed for me on a trip to Cape Lookout when I hiked to the edge of the Cape, looked down, and saw a mother and baby whale swimming just below us. It was a really striking experience, and it just got me really curious. Like, what's going on below the surface? Like, what's the family dynamic of these whales? What's motivating them to make this epic journey up and down the coast? So, I had park ranger and whale expert Luke Parsons on the show to talk about those exact questions. 
Today, I am here with Luke Parsons, the lead ranger at the Whale Watching Center in Depot Bay on the Oregon coast. He's the guy I turn to anytime I have a gray whale-related question. Thanks for taking some time today, Luke. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, so I wanted to start out with this, this kind of wide-angle question. Uh, what do you love about whale watching? I mean, was there a moment for you or a story or a reason that whales have become kind of a big part of uh, your job and work? If you asked me 10 years ago, what do you think you'll be doing? I would not have said working with whales, you know. I used to live in Moab, Utah, and I worked in the desert. And, you know, my background is really in experiential education and, and just connecting people with parks. And mm-hmm. now here working with the Oregon State Parks and specifically at the Whale Watching Center, the thing I've learned and the thing I enjoy the most is just the pure joy that whales bring to people. I don't care where you're from or where you've been, when you come out to the coast and and you go whale watching with your friends and families or even just by yourself and you see one of these amazing animals, you're usually just overwhelmed by this sense of wonder and joy and it's all kind of mixed together, but they're a special part of the Oregon coast. Mm -hmm. And now that you work at the Whale Watching Center, so what's it like on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Tell us a little bit about the the mission and purpose of that center. It's pretty unique for the whole Oregon coast and and really the West Coast in general. It's the only building that there are staff there. Their only job is to see whales and to help people like you and me see them also and just to learn about what's going on out there. It's a, it's a wonderful building. I mean, about 170,000 people a year come through. Wow. And each one of those people is looking for a whale or wants to learn about him. So it's a, it's a pretty cool opportunity. Was there any reason that it, the Whale Watching Center was placed in Depot Bay? Is that a, a, do you have a better vantage point there? Are there like resident whales? Is there something about that location that's better than others? Yeah. So Depot Bay is a pretty special spot on the whole Oregon coast. And it was just actually lucky for the state parks to have built that building there a long, long time ago. Um, Depot Bay is a little bit unique uh, in that it is, number one, it's, it's, it's a pretty deep harbor. And so just the topography underwater allows the animals, the whales specifically, to come very, very close to shore. Um, and so Depot Bay, the whole town, is kind of known as the whale-watching capital of the Oregon coast. And primarily it's because that's, that's probably your best place. That's your best chance if you're going to just pick any random day throughout the year and head to the coast. Depot Bay is where I would go just to increase your odds. Um, the whales are there, and we can see them just about every day that the weather is good enough that we can look. You yeah. know, In the winter, it can be challenging with big storms and wind and waves, but all spring, all summer, all fall, you're going to see whales there for sure. Oh, that's cool. So it's the, I didn't realize it was the depth of it. I've known it as like the smallest uh, harbor in the world. or It has that. But, I mean, how close can they get? Right off of the shore in front of our visitor center, um, it goes from zero feet and it drops all the way down to about 20 feet right in front of us. Okay. And so there will be days where a whale is literally one foot away from shore, right in front of our visitor center. Wow, that's crazy. And they're so close that you can hear them breathing. I mean, you can smell their breath. It's, it's one of those places on the planet where you're like, this, this is a real place? You know, it's, it's right there. They come super close. Now, the other thing that's really unique about that part of the Oregon coast is that whole stretch um, from Newport towards Lincoln City is that kind of really hard ancient volcanic flows. And what that allows is sea plants, specifically kelp and other forms of plants, to anchor their roots to the bottom of the ocean there. And no matter if there's wind or waves or whatever, their roots are strong enough to hold on to those rocks. Mm -hmm. 
And now down in the roots of those plants is where all of the whale food lives, the little tiny plankton. Um, if we were to go to a place like Cannon Beach or Seaside, it's a really beautiful sandy beach. Um, but those plants don't have anything that they can anchor their roots to. It's just sand. And so every time we have a storm or some big wave events, the plants just get ripped up. There's no food there. So that you're not going to see as many whales there. There's no reason for them to hang out. There's no food. Gotcha. Wow, that's really interesting. Can you kind of talk about the size of a gray whale and some of the things that might make them unique in the whale family? Yeah, so gray whales are kind of known as an average-sized whale. Mm -hmm. um, when they're fully grown, they're between 40 and 45 feet long. Uh, the females are a little bit bigger, um, but really it, it's hard to tell. I mean, we cannot tell a male from a female when it's just swimming around in the water out there. Um, one of the analogies that we use when we're trying to get people some perspective about these whales is a school bus. Mm -hmm. Most people have seen a school bus in their lifetime. Sure. And so next time you're parked next to one of those, you can kind of look at it and that's about the dimensions of a gray whale. They're pretty good size when they're fully grown. They're about 80,000 pounds and they're, they're pretty big. Um, and again, they're just kind of a standard run-of-the-mill sized whale. Gotcha. Cool. All right. So let's talk about these migrations since that's, again, that's a, a thing people kind of hone in on. So each year, just in a, in a nutshell here, each year 25,000 gray whales migrate past the Oregon coast and it's in two waves. So December to January and then again in late March. So those are the big times people go out to the beach, the headlands to try to see them. So on a basic level, why are they mi migrating at those times of year? What's, what's going on there? Yeah, so we'll start with that winter migration. That December and January wave, that's the entire population of about 25,000 whales are heading south, um, and most of them pass us within about a month. And really the peak of the migration is usually that last week in December or the first week in January, but then there's always still a few left, you know, those first couple weeks in January. All of those whales are headed south to Baja, Mexico, and that's where they're all going to go meet up to breed and or to give birth to the new uh, baby gray whales. And so the reason that all of these whales travel to Mexico this time of year, when they give birth to a young calf, uh, a brand new baby whale, that baby whale does not have any blubber on its body, no body fat, very, very little. And so they have to find warm water for that animal to be born in. And that's actually true among all baleen whales. All of the baleen whales have a, a cold water feeding area, and then they have to go towards the equator to give birth, or else their young wouldn't survive. Um, and so these whales all travel to Mexico, and if they are a pregnant female, they will give birth um, just to one calf, and that baby whale will be about 15 feet long, and it'll weigh about 2,000 pounds <laughs> when it's born. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. You know, they, they are a pretty big baby when they start. Yeah. Um, and they drink milk, just like all of the mammals. Um, the milk that they're drinking um, from their mother is about 54% milk fat. And so you can think of it, it's almost like the consistency of cream cheese or something. It's super thick. Mm -hmm. And that um, nutrient-dense food starts packing on the pounds on that little baby calf very, very quickly. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's, that's the number one reason that they all go there is to give birth in those nice, warm, protected waters. Now, for the other whales, the males and the females that are not currently pregnant, they're going there to breed. Now, breeding for gray whales only happens one time of year. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's the big reason that all of the gray whales head to Mexico is just to keep making more gray whales. Yeah. So when those migrations are occurring, like, uh, you know, when people are excited to go out to the coast and, and look for the whales. You know, I remember you'll spot a couple spouts and then kind of nothing for a while and then a couple more spouts. So what about the social structure is going on there? Is it like uncles and brother whales like hanging out together and then there's another family or what's what's going on below the surface? Good question. Yeah, we get a lot of questions about like the pods of gray whales mm-hmm. and the families and stuff. So, um, Gray whales are actually a species of whales that do not form pods. They spend most of their life as a solitary animal, just kind of cruising around and feeding. Um, What we see during the migrations, especially because there's so many animals going by, you know, 25,000 in just a short time frame, what we kind of liken it to is when you and I are traveling on the holidays to go see our family members and we're all stuck on I-5 together. Sometimes you will see three or four or five whales grouped up together, and you'll see a whole bunch of spouts around the same time, and they're all traveling the same way. So logically, we think like, oh, well, they're like a family of whales, and they're all heading to Mexico for the winter. Isn't that great? <laughs> but actually, it's just kind of a whale traffic jam out there. And so those big groups of spouts, they're way easier to identify. They're way easier to see. But in all likelihood, um, most of the whales that are traveling south along our coast, especially in the wintertime, they're actually just ones, maybe twos. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been some documented kind of behaviors where there's a female that's, that's swimming, you know, in the front of the pack. Mm-hmm. And there might be a few males trying to court her. Okay. Kind of like, hey, I'm going this way too. <laughs> we should, you know, we should hang out yeah. um, type of a thing. But for the most part, The whales that you see, especially in the wintertime, they don't know each other. They're not working together. They just happen to be swimming at the same way at the same time. Interesting. All right. So they're down in the Baja for, for, is it, it's a couple months for both breeding and giving birth. So you have calves being born. There's other whales being impregnated. Uh, What's the timeline here? How long does, does this period last before uh, they start heading north? And what is the impetus for them heading north again? Is it a time of year? So kind of give me a little timeline in there. For sure. So we'll say all of the whales kind of get to Baja the end of January, early February. So those pregnant females, they're going to go find some quieter areas of the bay um, and they're going to give birth and they're going to be mothers for right now. The rest of the whale population, the males and the females who are becoming pregnant, they're there, they're breeding. It's, it's kind of nonstop. It happens for a few weeks. Um, and it, if you're a male, gray whale, you might only be in Baja for three, four weeks and then you're done. Your, your, your mission is, is complete. You are now hungry, um, and you're going to start heading back north to Alaska. And that's kind of the same for female gray whales who are there who have just become pregnant. They kind of instinctively know, okay, I'm pregnant. I'm going to need to grow this huge baby, right? I need to go back to Alaska where there's enough food to sustain me and to grow this, this calf. And so they might actually only, they might leave after just three or four weeks. Now, if you're a female gray whale and you just gave birth, again, that calf doesn't have enough blubber or insulation or strength, really, to swim north yet. And so they will actually stay in Mexico for a month and a half, maybe two months. That little calf is nursing. 
um, by the time that they leave Mexico, um, that calf has almost doubled in weight. You know, it's closer to 4,000 pounds. They're like little gray sausages with tails. <laughs> and they can start, they have enough energy, and, and they've been training with their mom. They, they're actually these really cool little training currents that they have found. Some researchers have kind of um, shot some great video of these little mothers, like, pushing their little baby out into this current, like, okay, stay in the current, keep up, go, 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 like a treadmill, mm-hmm. like sure. training, sure. right, so they can make this journey. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the moms swimming with the with the new calves. Um, did they tend to, to cruise as fast as they can, or are you seeing them going a little slower, hugging the shoreline, looking for, for a little bit more of those snacks? I mean, uh, what does that dynamic look like? Yeah, so that mother is super protective of that little calf, obviously. She's just dedicated a whole year of her life to, to growing it and now trying to do the best that she can to take care of that animal. Um, but gray whale calves are the target prey for a few different animals. The number one species of animal that will hunt them is actually orcas, killer whales. And so a lot of gray whale calves are attacked on their northbound migration. And so one of the defenses that these mother gray whales learn throughout their life is to number one, swim slowly, swim quietly, and swim relatively close to shore. And so orcas, they're a species of whale that prefers deeper water. Um, You know, they use echolocation to kind of see, they work as a pod, all that kind of stuff. But what the gray whales do, you know, if it's a learned behavior or if it's just kind of instinctive, we don't really know. But what the gray whale mothers will do is keep her and that calf, sometimes they'll be in the waves of the beach. They'll be so close to shore. And the thought behind that is, from a research perspective is, well, if the orcas are out in the deep water, those gray whales and the calves are going to be really safe in the shallow water. And also, if the orcas are relying on that echolocation to kind of see these whales and to hunt them, one of the thoughts is that the water is so turbulent in the waves or really close to the rocks that they just can't see as well, and so they don't hunt them. Um, But yeah, those mothers swim super slow, super close to shore, And so it is really neat if you have the experience of coming across a mother and a calf sometime. Uh, It can be pretty unreal. Like they're they're almost literally touching the shore sometimes. Yeah, I, I think I, that's the experience I think we had at uh, Cape Lookout, you know, which juts out two miles into the ocean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, you saw the one whale and then you looked a little closer and you're right. It was kind of like a little, like a short bus almost. Yeah. Like of a, of a whale pulling up right next to her. And everyone there was just like awestruck because it was just one of those moments you don't almost, you almost don't expect to have a moment that cool. For sure. And they're almost right below you because the cape really sticks out yeah cape lookout is a great spot especially during that northbound migration because it sticks so far out in the water it's going to kind of catch any of those whales that are traveling close to shore then they'll have to kind of sneak in around it and so that that can be a really really cool spot to see them is there any downside for the moms in being that close i just feel like the the amount of rocks and and stuff like that is there is there any hazard in them traveling that way not, not really. Um, gray whales are a species of whale that are extremely comfortable in shallow water. That's where they spend pretty much their entire life feeding and grazing is in water that's less than 20 feet deep sometimes. Um, and so when you hear about like whale strandings and stuff like that, very rarely will it be a gray whale. Again, it's just that's where they're comfortable is so close to the rocks. And especially here on the Oregon coast, those summertime feeding whales, which I think we'll talk about later, 
that's where they spend all day every day is mm-hmm. literally in 10 feet of water. Gotcha. All right. Well, anything else interesting that we didn't touch on about the gray whale specific migrations? One thing about the spring migration is that it's it's just more spread out than that winter migration. Mm. So even if folks can't make it out to the coast during that official spring whale watch week, it's going to be March, April, May, June. You will still see gray whales traveling north along the Oregon coast all of those months. And it is just because how spread out that migration is on their way back. So that's part of an interview from episode 22. In the full episode, we also spent a lot of time talking about the best places to see whales from the Oregon coast, kind of the best times to go, what to bring, and a lot of good stuff like that so you can actually spot the whales. So if you want more on this topic, feel free to listen to that entire episode, which you can definitely find online, statesmanjournal.com explore. I have a list of all of the episodes we've produced over the years, all 80 of them. Okay, well, up next, we're going to go from the depths of the ocean to the depths of Oregon's old growth rainforest. So back in 2017, on episode 10, we covered Congress passing legislation that created a place known as the Devil's Staircase Wilderness. I had two environmentalists who championed that legislation for over a decade on to talk about the place itself, how to explore and more importantly, not explore, and what makes this area of the coast range outside of Reedsport so unique. All right, now we're going to take a deep dive into the Devil's Staircase Wilderness, a remote patch of old growth rainforest that hides a mythic waterfall. It's located just inland of Reedsport, maybe 25 miles from the Oregon coast. To help us get the lay of the land and understand the area's unique history, I'm joined today by Josh Lachlan, Executive Director of Cascadia Wildlands, and Andy Stahl, Executive Director of Forest Service Employees for Environmental Ethics. Hey guys, thanks for joining me. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Josh, how would you describe the the 30,000 acres here? So what makes the area stick out compared to other places, especially in the coast range? Sure. Well, if you go up a couple thousand feet in elevation, say in an airplane or a Google Earth earth view. Uh, It really stands out like a sore thumb when you look at the rest of the Oregon Coast Range, which has been heavily fragmented for uh, about the last hundred years. And really what you see at this, at the, the, really the confluence of the lower Umpqua River and the lower Smith River Mm -hmm. is this unroded texture from up above that stands out again like a sore thumb when you look at the surrounding landscape. And what that difference in texture is is just a primeval rainforest uh, that exists now like it did hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's got centuries old rainforest in it, head high ferns, uh, water gushing in every gully uh, most months of the year except for the uh, real dry months. And uh, it's a it's a bastion for uh, imperiled wildlife and salmon, and truly uh, represents a remnant slice of the Oregon Coast Range. You know that it did hundreds of years ago. And give me a, a visual when when you're off in that you know dense primeval forest. What are you looking at? A lot of brush yeah. and thicket and down logs and if you're lucky and when you're looking down you might see a 12 inch long giant pacific salamander 
uh, crawling along the forest floor. You may hear the hoot of a northern spotted owl. Uh, if you're there at the right time of the year, say May through uh, August in the wee hours, you may hear the keer of an imperiled marbled merlet that's come in from the Pacific Ocean to nest in the coastal old growth forest found in Devil's Staircase. Uh, you really just have to open yourself up and to really experience the place from the sights to the smells to the feelings and also the visuals like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anything from you, Andy, that, uh, you know, sticks out as far as visually? It's as wild as wild can get. My, my, my impression, what I always take back from that area is green. Yeah. Everywhere is green. The forest floor is green. The, the vine maple and the salmonberry and the huckleberry, it's all green. Uh, the understory trees coming up, the uh, Grand Fir, the Douglas Fir green, the cedars, everything is green there. Every shade of green. Every shade of green, absolutely. <laughs> Let me ask you about the waterfall itself. It's way, way out there. And we're going to talk about how it's so far out there it was basically a wilderness myth for a long time. But for right now, Andy, can you kind of describe the Devil's Staircase? Like what it actually looks like and what you'll find down there at the bottom of the canyon? Well, here's one of the problems that actually uh, 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 mystifies many visitors. Mm -hmm. There are two waterfalls. Okay. And the first of them, and the easier to find, is appropriately called Folly Falls. (laughs) Because it's a folly if you think that's the real thing. Yeah. And it's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. But it's not the Devil's Staircase. Mm -hmm. There, There are Devil's Staircase itself is just flat out spectacular. And uh, one of the coolest things about it, it's got these huge uh, pools in it Mm -hmm. that have been scoured over the eons in the sandstone. Mm -hmm. And so you can have hot tub parties. Yeah. And it's a really unique waterfall, too. It's not like your classic, like, big plunge. It's kind of this this many-tiered waterfall. It is a staircase. Yeah. Um, And uh, each step is five, six feet wide Mm -hmm. and several feet high. Mm -hmm. Um, And during the winter, Mm -hmm. um, it's a heavy flow. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, some very experienced kayakers have kayaked the whole length of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's an experience in itself that will probably kill most people. (laughs) Um, But the time to see it is when it's not pouring down rain and when the river isn't running at high flood. Mm -hmm. And and then the the waterfall is very prosaic. Mm -hmm. It's it's not spectacular in the sense of a lot of water, Mm -hmm. but it's gorgeous. Yeah. This is kind of a a funny question that I know people grapple with. How do you go about actually exploring this area and reaching this namesake waterfall? Because one thing is the striking lack of access. Uh, compared to just about most other places in Oregon. At least there's some kind of access, but there's no trails here. It just seems like there's bushwhacking rats. So let me let me phrase it this way. If you started out from Eugene, like what's the process of actually getting out there if you do want to take your chances here? You know, I'm going to answer that this way. If you can't figure out how to do it yourself, <laughs> don't. Yeah. This place is too dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's too wild. It's too remote. And, um, and we're not in the business of making it easy because mm-hmm. there's nothing about it that's easy at all. Mm-hmm. So unless you can do it yourself, figure that out. Unless you are very skilled, just don't even try. Yeah. When the 
campaign to permanently protect it was heating up, or at least the most recent iteration, mm-hmm. say in 2007, 2008. Uh, we're leading lots of public hikes down there to showcase it off to uh, the American public and interested parties, those that, that cherish uh, wild country and protected landscapes. And uh, it started to get some recognition in the local press and, and media outlets and so forth. And people... Um, understandably so, you know, wanted to, you know, put a notch in the belt and find the staircase. And they were going out uh, to search for this mysterious waterfall, not quite knowing what they were getting into. And uh, the Cascadia Wildlands Office all of a sudden became the calling house for the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, (laughs) you know, asking us, you know, how do we get in there? We've gotten calls from spouses of, you know, lost hikers and we need your help to get them out and find them. How do we drive down to the staircase? Yeah. You know, even the sheriff's office didn't realize that this is a massive unroaded area and told them, you know, hopefully they'll, you know, they've planned well enough to spend an unplanned night in the woods and they'll get out alive. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, that's been the case thus far. Nobody's been critically injured or, or you know, met their match down there. But Andy's right. It's uh, it's not a place for everyone to go hike. Mm-hmm. And that's really the beauty of the, the, the landscape down there. There's not a lot of places like this left uh, in the country. And to even to, to just put a, a, a picture to it, I mean, I remember when I went out there, we, basically I just followed you. You know, we headed off on, you know, remote forest service roads. And then all of a sudden we stopped. And then it was basically bushwhacking at that point. Maybe a few game trails here, but nothing you could navigate by you were just you're just down in there and that was it it can even be worse than that in a sense and that is that it's as if the landscape wants to send get you lost <laughs> because oftentimes the course of less resistance is the wrong way yeah so how do you how do you describe it to people i mean when when you get those phone calls we encourage people to to join us on a guided hike um we discourage people from going to try and find the staircase themselves uh, because we want to try and avoid uh, those kind of scenarios where they're lost for the night and loved ones are looking for them. Uh, So occasionally we'll plan guided hikes with uh, some of our expert backcountry guides that take people down there. Uh, It's oftentimes not to the staircase. There's other parts of this proposed 30,500 acre wilderness uh, that we've discovered and located and found these multi-centuries old uh, dug fir groves uh, to showcase. And so there's all different little pockets that have become hot spots in the area for people to see. So there's mm-hmm. uh, certainly um, ways to access the proposed wilderness that aren't this life-challenging, mm-hmm. uh, life-threatening, on your hands and knees through Devil's Club and uh, rhododendron thickets. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a couple of different areas that uh, we've we've pioneered into the area. Mm-hmm. Do you did you get a sense of the story of of why this was either missed or or wasn't logged or didn't become part of that grid system? What what's going on there? Well, we actually have to credit um, generations of Forest Service Rangers mm-hmm. for this place still being unlogged. Um, it was withdrawn by the foresters from the timber harvest base mm-hmm. in the 1960s. Wow. Because it was just too steep, mm-hmm. too erosive, too prone to landslides. Uh, then, under pressure from the timber industry, 
it was put back into the timber base mm-hmm. briefly. And some logging was attempted mm-hmm. on the edges. But then in the 1980s, lawsuits over that logging mm-hmm. and over the landslides withdrew it again gotcha. from the timber base. And now for the last generation, it's been um, enjoyed protection uh, for its old growth forests, mm-hmm. for its salmon, and, um, and it hasn't been eligible for logging now for about 30 years. Gotcha. And one thing that's important to recognize, those protections that Andy mentioned uh, have just been administrative protections. They've, the area has never received uh, the permanent protection for federal public land that only Congress can allocate for an, an area, and that's through the, the Wilderness Act, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Bedrock 1964 statute. And that's what uh, Congress is working toward now. Yeah. All right. So, Josh, we, we've talked about this a little bit in the past uh, during reporting stuff. I mean, but, but let me bring this up again, because this is something people are going to be wondering about, especially if this legislation does go through and get passed. So say it passes Congress, gets signed into law. Now it's on the map. And I suspect even more people want to go there because Devil's Staircase, look, that's a good name. Um, what happens next? How do you how do you manage it? Is it a trail? To Devil's Staircase is a trail somewhere else. Um, how, how do people like? What would you like to see happen as somebody who's been there for a long time? Sure, it's a great question uh, and one that you know requires a lot of thought and uh, careful planning because you know what we've seen and we're uh, experiencing in other uh, Forest Service administrative units around the West and here in Oregon is um, nature getting loved to death. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously the last thing you want to do. You ha- you've built up this um, appreciation for, for such an amazing place and then it gets trampled and the firings get built and the beer bottles get smashed and um, it's, you know, the party's over at that point. So it's our hope that uh, the agencies uh, that oversee this area, the Forest Service and the BLM, um, put a lot of foresight into that to ensure the area doesn't get loved to death. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something unique about the Devil's Staircase. There's a reason it has never been logged in the in an otherwise most productive timber-growing country in the world. It's because it's so steep, so remote, so inaccessible, uh, and there's there is a beauty in that as well. So. Uh, and of course, you know, if, if you look at the language of the 1964 um, Wilderness Act, you know, it's it's not all about designating it for human benefit. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at the language, it's a it talks about humans being uh, visitors. Well, what do you think, Andy? I mean, would you how would you feel if the Forest Service said, "Look, we're going to create a Devil's Staircase Trail from Trailhead"? straight down to the waterfall. A lot of people, every a lot of Portland hikers are going to want that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'd be confident of two things. Uh, one, the Forest Service will never say that. Okay. And second, even if the Forest Service did, there wouldn't be the money to build such a trail. Mm-hmm. And third, even if there was the money to build it, that trail would not withstand the test of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is too steep. Mm-hmm. It is too remote. It is too hard to maintain. That trail would erode away within a couple of years. All right, I teased this a little bit at the beginning, but Andy, you have a great story about one of the early adventures to Devil's Staircase, back when it is really just a wilderness myth, a place that people told rumors about, but few people had actually seen. So it starts at Oregon State, right? So can you tell that story real quick? The uh, group of students at Oregon State University decided that 
they would find the mm -hmm. double staircase waterfall. And for years, they led uh, weekend trips into the area, getting lost every time. <laughs> And uh, sometimes having to spend the night unexpectedly yeah. in the woods, ill-prepared, uh, clamoring over vine maple through ravines, gullies, being uh, uh, attacked by uh, uh, bears and what have you. And the stories just kept getting bigger and bigger and more outrageous. And they never found it. Yeah. They never did. Where did the where did the myth come from? Was it just like rumors that spread across friends, or they, they all thought mm -hmm. that that there must be this spectacular waterfall? And and it turns out, of course, that really old timers yeah. uh, had actually been there, yeah. but never publicized it. Yeah. And uh, and it takes a major commitment. Yeah. To get there, as as I found out in the early 1980s. So so tell me what about about your adventure? Tell me about how you did it. Well, I I decided uh, my wife and I then um, decided that we should leave nothing to chance this time. Uh -huh. Rather than trying to go cross country, we would start where the creek starts mm -hmm. at its headwaters, and just hike the length of the creek yeah. because somewhere along there there had to be the waterfall. Yeah. And we had no idea. Uh, there's no trail. Mm -hmm. um, we had tennis shoes, a walking stick, uh, backpacks, and we just set off down the creek during late summer, low, low flow, mm -hmm. not knowing what to expect or how long it would take or how we would cross the Smith River at the other end <laughs> when we got to the end of it even. Did you know much about the area being like a total blank spot on the map at that point? Or was it just like... We didn't even have a map. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and, and there's really no sense in having a map. Yeah. Wanted to end with this. You've both been working towards this for, for quite a while, um, if it does pass. So how do you feel? Well, for myself, it, it may mark the end of my career. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I've been, um, uh, through one means or another, trying to reserve the option of Devil's Staircase becoming protected forever uh, since the early 1980s. Yeah. Um, so I, I will feel like it was a long haul, uh, well worth it. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I hope that people enjoy the idea that it's there. And um, I hope that very few people ever see it. Okay, well, again, that was from episode 10, which also featured an interview with Oregon Senator Ron Wyden. So if you want to listen to that, you can catch the full episode again on episode 10, and you can find the old episodes online or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we'll meet a fire lookout who worked for almost three decades at the top of a mountain. Then we'll hear from a ranger who talks about the subtle art of enforcing limited entry permit systems in Oregon's wilderness areas, and a man who creates art in the sand. I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. 
It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The last two years have been tough on the beaches and trails of the Tillamook Coast. With more people flocking to the area in search of outdoor activities comes a spike in the appearance of trash along roads, trails, and beaches. Be part of the solution and make a point at helping curb this problem. Dispose of your trash and designated receptacles and practice leave no trace visitation. Make it a habit to bring a trash bag along in your hike or beach walk and pick up at least three pieces of trash along your way. It may seem like a drop in the bucket, but every little bit makes a difference. Learn more about how you can help by visiting www.tillamookcoast.com and downloading the Tillamook Coast Pledge. You can help preserve the legacy of beautiful trails and beaches for generations to come. All right, welcome back. Well, if you ever headed east of Detroit and hiked to the top of a beautiful peak called Coffin Mountain at any time over the last 30 years, chances are good that you might have met Anne Amundsen, or at least seen her place of business. She was a lookout up there each summer for three decades. In episode five, I hiked up there to chat with her about spotting fires, solitude, and what it's like to be atop a mountain during a lightning storm. So here's that interview. All right, well, the next place we're traveling to is Coffin Mountain Lookout. It's located about two hours east of Salem in Willamette National Forest. It's really a great place to be reminded that for all the new technology in our lives, fire lookouts still serve their original purpose in a lot of places. So earlier this summer, I headed to Coffin Mountain to talk with Ann Amundsen. She's been staffing the lookout for the last 29 years. To get up to visit her, I had to drive on some gravel roads southeast of Detroit Lake before a pretty steep hike takes you up to the lookout. You are Zach? I'm Zach. How's it going? You don't look like your pictures. I don't look like my pictures. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us up. Sure. I'm Ann Amundsen on Coffin Mountain Lookout. Work for the Willamette National Forest and uh, my 29th season here. When you look out, like, what, what, what are you looking at? So the Wil Mount Jefferson Wilderness out here in Mount Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of tell where the clear cuts are. Then it's wilderness beyond that. And then heading south, you have Hoodoo with the Little Slash Line and Mount Washington. And the Three Sisters with Broken Top in the background. It's a lot of looking around. Officially, you only have to look around every 15 minutes. But I know the lookouts that I know, I think we spend a lot more time than that. And you just are in the habit of constantly looking around. I wake up in the middle of the night. That's the first thing you do is look around. That's what that's what you do. There's times when I'm like, I feel like I'm staring holes in the ground. And when one pops up, it's pretty obvious. you know. Yeah. <laughs> but other times it's like, wow, I had one oh, eight years ago or so. It was on the state land. And all it was was drift smoke came up uh, you know, above the farthest ridge. And then it was gone. And you start thinking, did I really see that? 
you know, I'm watching, watching, nothing else came up. I'm like, I know I saw it, like, call it in. Somebody needs to go check that out. And it was, it was a five acre fire way out. So it's easy to second guess yourself. Yeah. <laughs> when you're the only one here, if I have somebody else visiting even, I'll be, do you see that? Do you see that? You know, like, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Now I know for sure. Can you tell when it's like a fire, when it's like something else? Yeah, you do. But last week with the really cold temperatures at night and then in the morning when it started warming up, a lot of um, the small lakes out here will produce steam and make their own little clouds. Yeah. And oh my gosh, I stared at a few of them for a long time. Like, okay, but that's not quite like a smoke, but it's not coming up really high enough for me to see. And I'm watching and watching and watching them, you know, it was before I was even in service and uh, it went away and that was it. So, you know, you line your firefinder up on it, goes right over this lake that's out there. Mm-hmm. That's probably what it is. It looks like it to me, but people like to camp at lakes so yeah. you don't know for sure <laughs> in a normal year um do you spot like like how many how many do you think you spot? huge variety yeah. um two years ago was a record low of zero for yeah. me <laughs> i think the whole willamette burned like five acres total yeah. yeah and then i think my highest year is 40 some fires mm-hmm. i just have particular lightning storms that really stand out yeah like mind. can you see like can you see the lightning like mm-hmm. all over the place and... mm-hmm and yeah i can remember one storm i don't know what year i'm sure it's in my journal um where you heard thunder for like almost a whole minute after a strike you know it was just the most amazing rumble go on for the longest time it was pretty cool it's gotta be cool watching yeah. like those storms like come in and yeah then, like when they come overhead and the safest place in this building is to be on the bed which is great and if it's going to be that close and i have to disconnect my radio um I just sit there with a pillow <laughs> and uh, because if you don't know where to look for lightning, it could happen any direction. And, and if you do look when it's a flash right in front of you, then you're blinded for seconds. Mm-hmm. So you don't know which way to look. So and then it's so loud and the building shakes and you just jump sort of thing. And it's just pretty exciting for how <laughs> long that is. So what what's like the ideal scenario for like you know people who hike up here like do you like them to come and just shoot the breeze with you for a little bit but understand you're working and yeah yeah um and that's fine and there's sometimes you know well i'll answer some questions but say i'm really busy with the radio right now or you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and most lookouts i know are fine with that yeah yeah yeah. um i do have people though that want to hang out yeah Yeah. (laughs) and i have people ask me for water i just had a guy climb up on my deck while i was standing here to grab my wash basin i was using to rinse my paintbrushes yeah because he needed it for his dog but i was thinking well you could have asked me. You know, he just climbed up and grabbed it. I was kind of like, what are you doing? For the most part, everybody's fantastic. I mean, I have regular visitors now that come up and bring me chocolate every time they show up, you know? Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there used to be so many, you know, 800 fire lookouts, mm-hmm. and it's gradually gotten smaller. Like, do you feel like a, I don't know, a steward of this, like, profession that's been going on since, yeah. like, the 1920s and stuff? Yeah. Like, carrying on that tradition. Like, do you have that feeling about it? I do. It? I do. It's kind of cool yeah. to be part of that. And and worried about that fading, yeah. you know, and it could. And so I just, I'm going to feel lucky that I've been able to do it. Uh-huh. I never thought it would be, like, my career. But, um, yeah, it's ended up that way. And I think as long as you really like what you're doing, mm-hmm. that's what's most important.
Okay, so again, that originally came from episode five, in which we focused on fire lookouts across the Oregon mountains, including the best ones to visit and which ones you are allowed to rent. As for Anne, she has since retired from being a fire lookout. Unfortunately, she did lose her home during the Labor Day fires in the Saniam Canyon, and we recently reconnected with her while we were working on a story about the challenges of rebuilding in the wake of the fires two years later. So I'll link to that story on our main page, on our main episode page for this episode. But the happy news is that she did just get her permit and got the go ahead to start building her new home. Okay, up next, we've got a pretty short but interesting interview from episode seven, when we took a close look at the Central Cascades Wilderness Permit System that has become common knowledge for listeners to this podcast. It's become the big deal. You have to get the permit to go in the Three Sisters, Mount Jefferson, and Mount Washington wilderness areas. So this one was interesting because it was what we reported on beforehand. And this interview was with Dylan McCoy, a ranger whose job it was to check people's permits in the Obsidian limited entry area, which you can think of as kind of a precursor to the larger permit system in place right now. He talked about how limited entry works, the ways in which people try to get out of trouble when they get caught without a permit, and the upside of the permit system as he saw it in the Obsidian area. You guys have a permit I can check real quick? Uh, my name's Dylan McCoy. I'm the lead wilderness ranger on the McKinsey River Ranger District, Willamette National Forest. And right now we're in a hemlock forest at the base of the lava flow in Obsidian Limited Entry Area. I'm curious uh, how many people that you come across in this job who are surprised or, or, or don't know? That's a good question, actually. When I first started, a lot of people uh, didn't know or, or said that they didn't know. And uh, since we started doing a little bit more signage and enforcement, I've gotten up to above 90% compliance okay. uh, with people having permits. So a lot of people are pretty familiarized and even ask me now, hey, do you want to see my permit when I first approach them? So it's, it seems like the information's out there. Uh, encounter, does it, does it ever get uh, unfriendly? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely does. Uh, it hasn't ever gotten violent, yeah. but it's gotten uh, verbally abusive for sure. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, normally I give uh, tickets on the spot, but mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I judge that mm -hmm. based on how people are going to receive it and what kind of lesson folks need to learn. Because you're not required mm -hmm. to cite people. Um, and we really don't want to cite folks, but some folks aren't going to learn a lesson any other way. I've been amazed at how tricky people try and be about uh, getting into the area or trying to twist verbiage and stuff to make it uh, uh, meet their own agenda. And it's just, it's really quirky, but it's its also just hypocritical in a lot of ways, I find, because what we're attempting to do, what, you can argue whether it's effective or not, what we're attempting to do is maintain a certain condition that people seem to desire over a long period of time, and to say, well, I'm supposed to be the special one who, who doesn't have to abide by that, is strangely hypocritical, because they come here to have the experience. Like, do you think this is a, a good model? Like, you know, in your time out here, have you seen it been be successful in accomplishing the things that you want to have? Like, a little less people, a little less impact. Like, do you think it's worked well? I think it's shown signs of success. Uh, some of those things have been, yeah, more opportunities for solitude in the area that normally would have a lot of traffic. Um, we've been seeing wildlife, I think, more often. So one of my staff has been here since the early 90s, and never really saw deer up here. We were watching deer herds come through just yesterday uh, in the area. So 
I think wildlife, uh, that's a, that's a biggie and, uh, less newly impacted ground. So I call it campsite proliferation where there gets so much use that all the sites are filled that people have to make a new site. So yeah, it's shown signs of success. And, and with people telling us like the folks that were just here that, uh, we, we came here because we want the experience that this guarantees. We don't want to go somewhere like Green Lakes. That's, I've been getting that a lot this summer. Yeah. Okay, so again, that is from episode seven. And it's pretty interesting looking back because in that episode, we sort of forecasted what we thought might happen when that larger permit system came online. And that has happened the last two years. So if you want to, you can listen to that old episode, see if our coverage before matches up with the reality of what has happened since. Okay, well, we already had one person on here to talk about fire lookouts. But guess what? I'm adding another one for this interview. So this was with Cheryl Hill, author of the book Fire Lookouts of Oregon. We talked about the rise and fall of fire lookouts in Oregon and the United States kind of how they got their start, when they reached their golden age, and then why they've started to be replaced by other modes of spotting wildfires. So real interesting conversation right here. Cool. So I am here at the West Lynn Public Library with Cheryl Hill, author of Fire Lookouts of Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's let's jump back in time a little bit. So, what laid the groundwork for the fire lookout system to be installed? I mean, what was what was going on in the early 1900s that, that made it necessary? So, in 1910, there was a huge wildfire. They called it the Big Blow Up, and it was mostly in Idaho and Montana, and it burned three million acres. It was a massive wildfire. It was a very devastating fire, and it was so devastating that the Forest Service decided they needed to prevent this kind of thing in the future. And they developed this network of fire lookouts throughout the national forests. You know, we talked a little bit about this, but when is that window, that sort of golden age of fire lookouts, you know, when they were most prolific in Oregon? And uh, so when was that going on? Give me a sense of that time period. The lookout building boom really got going in the 1930s. And a big reason for that was the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, Suddenly there was this big workforce of men who could work on campgrounds and trails and roads. Interestingly, a lot of women became lookouts during World War II. Men were off fighting in the war, and so women, often school teachers, were uh, staffing lookouts in place of men who were off fighting the war. So I've always been amazed by, you know, you talked a little bit about the remote location. I mean, do you, did you get a sense in, in doing your book on, like, how they actually did it because I've tried to imagine like even a place like Bull of the Woods like you know there's there wasn't a road I don't think and so was it just young men hauling this material back and forth or did you get a sense of how that happened? So in the early days of the lookouts there were very few roads and so their trails had to be built. They built a network of trails through the forest and built trails up to these lookout sites. And then materials had to be hauled in by horses and mules. And a lookout requires quite a bit of material. You need uh, concrete for the foundation. You need wood. You need nails and hammers and, of course, the windows. So they'd have to make many trips with all those horses and mules. So when did uh, you know that golden age start to end? And, and what, what sort of precipitated uh, the decline from 
you know, why did they stop, you know, needing to be used quite so much? So lookout use really declined in the 1950s. They started using aerial detection more during that time. Uh, Helicopters and planes started to be used more for spotting fires, and they started to use the lookouts less. The aerial detection was considered more efficient than paying people to staff lookouts and get supplies to the lookouts, and so they really started to decline in the 1950s. So any other interesting tidbits or, you know, thoughts on Lookout in general? One of the interesting parts about Lookout history is the legacy that they've left. Even though so many of them are gone now, we now have those trails to mountaintops. And there are so many great hikes now that may not exist if those trails hadn't been originally built to access the Lookouts. Cool. Well, thank you so much for for taking some time. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to wrap up with a very short interview with a guy named Denny Dyke, who years ago would just start drawing elaborate artwork on Oregon coast beaches. His labyrinths have become increasingly popular over the years, and today they're big events every spring and summer in Bandon as part of what's known as Circles in the Sand. I caught up with him a few years ago. Actually, I did this interview a few days before the pandemic totally upended life. So it's kind of interesting to hear that again with the knowledge of what was about to happen, but not much has changed with Circles in the Sand. He's still doing that artwork out there on the coast. Yeah, you know, Face Rock is one of the most recognizable landmarks on the South Coast. You know, it's just a beautiful spot in general, but it's also become well known for a new reason, and that's because April through August, it becomes the site of a very cool event called Circles in the Sand. It's a little hard to describe without a picture, but basically a group of artists get together and create an intricate labyrinth designs on the beach. From above, they look a little bit like highly artistic crop circles, and they are the brainchild of artist Denny Dyke, who's been creating this this sand art since 2011. A fun part is that once the artists finish creating these labyrinth maze artworks, the public's allowed to walk on them. You'll see people following these fun, funky pathways on weekends and usually a Thursday or Friday. It's pretty fun and has become increasingly popular. Here's some audio I took on a visit last year. Hi, I'm Denny Dyke from Circles in the Sand, and uh, I've been drawing on the beach now since 2011. 2015, I took the project full-time. We draw 40 to 60 days a year for the public. I have a team of five uh, drawing people with me and another six or seven ambassadors that help us. And all the grooming is done by volunteers. We are here to celebrate love, joy, peace, harmony, and spread as much community love as we can. What inspired you to do it in in the first place? Actually, I was never an artist before I started this project. I started it because uh, I used Labyrinth as a meditation tool for years, and so I started drawing for myself originally. Uh, When I first started drawing, people uh, would walk around the pieces of work. I was called the alien. I was called the crop circle guy uh, for several years. Uh, But now, as you can see, they all come down and enjoy the walk for us. Last summer, we averaged about 400 people a day. Did you ever expect it to become such a, I mean, it's a a tourist attraction now on par with anything in Bandon. It's uh, really taking a life of its own now, and I had no uh, outcome in mind, and I still don't. 
Uh, my team and I come down here, everything's improv, we don't pre-plan anything. Okay, so is it, so you pick a theme and then do you come up with, you know, sort of interpretations on it? Like See, Most of the themes are, we've got ocean, we use celestial, we have a zen theme where everything's just nice and smooth. Uh, and then bottom line is when they get out there, whatever they put in the sand. Like I said, uh, but that's just an indicator. Let's focus on hearts, let's focus on love or whatever. What's the process? You mark it in the morning and then draw it. Or tell to bring me from the morning okay. into the afternoon when people are walking okay. around. Uh, we got on the sand here about eight o'clock this morning. Uh, we look at it from uh, up on top and uh, decide where we're going to draw. And uh, then we come down here. There's five of us when we start. And uh, basically, we put in our dedication circle and an entrance and an exit. And then James goes to one end, I go to the other, and we start drawing. We'll leave the circles for the sand artists to do what they need to do. And then the groomers come in and groom it all up and make us look good. Yeah, I, I see the public is, is walking through it right now. Are they walking like a, uh, it's almost a, a maze? or? Well, it, it's a, a labyrinth. It's a single path, no dead ends, no wrong turns. Uh, this particular one should be about a half mile long. And as you'll notice, everybody's just enjoying the nice even walk. And uh, especially with everything going on in today's world, we need that time to just settle down, be with ourselves and in the environment. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.